Hello and welcome to Render, the harm reduction podcast. I'm Andrea Brunet, author of one of the Hillbilly Drug Baby books and a former journalist. What I love is lifting up the voices of others. This podcast gives life to those struggling with the opioid crisis in Appalachia. You'll hear voices of insight, pain, suffering, and redemption. You don't have to have read the Hillbilly Drug Baby books to enjoy the podcast. You'll meet Appalachia's opioid warriors as well as those who are planting seeds of hope. In this episode, you'll hear from a former addict and sex worker who made a new life for herself in the field of recovery. She's had to leave one job because of the trauma of witnessing overdoses. She's now part of a federal grant creating a network devoted to harm reduction in seven Appalachian states. Also, I'll discuss Jesse Ray Lewis's poetry with Sandra Kelly, author of the book Southern Appalachian Storytellers, Interviews with Sixteen Keepers of the Oral Tradition. First, we'll start with an excerpt of a poem from the book Hillbilly Drug Baby, The Poems by Jesse Ray Lewis. Here it's read by Daniel Eddie Williams in the audiobook version. It's titled Torment, and for once the torment this young man is writing about isn't his own, but someone else's. Trying to vent the fumes of chemicals that would burn someone's retinas out to make them see the darkness I see. Two knees on the ground, screaming, Please, man, please! His pleas mean nothing to me. I feed on them. I love to hear the scream. Dream of the pain I've experienced. Try to get rid of it through him as he chokes on puke and blood and drowns to death. His body shudders. Danger is a blood-stained grin on the face of a person who never gives in. This is one of those poems where I always wondered how much of it came from real life. Hello, Sandra. Hi, Andrea. It's good to hear from you today. You're an imaginative writer yourself, but you know that some part of a writer's experience always informs their work. Did you conclude anything about what percentage of this scene was Jesse Ray's actual own experience? In fact, enough that he would attempt to vent the fumes that would burn my retinas out so I could see the darkness that he sees. He sees it. He wants me to see it. And I don't want to look at it, but but he shows it to us. So that action of venting the fumes, he's taking some action. So it doesn't sound like something that is being made up out of whole cloth. No, it does not. It doesn't actually say, it doesn't say that he's, did the act, but it does frame it as though he was there and part of it in some way. He was there and part of it, but you don't know if it's him or there are others there. And if there are others there, you don't know how many others are there. No way to know, but you're in a space, a small space is the way I see it. Wherever it is, it's, it's enclosed in that passion of the moment, the bloodthirst. So that rings true to you. Yes. As something that, at least in part, if not in whole, actually occurred. The word torment in the English dictionary 
actually means punishment or coercion, excruciating physical pain. So you don't necessarily have to be the one who physically does the act to feel it, because then you may have a conscience that exacerbates your response to it and you ingest it and it becomes your act. So often with Jesse Ray, what really seemed to prey on his mind night and day were the things that he had done that had hurt other people. Because deep down, he had a, a humanity about him and a kindness. And he could not let it go that he had been the instrument of other people's pain. And what has come to my mind over and over, especially in light of the recent trial of the, the murder of George Floyd. And I'm looking in my mind as I speak right now at the policeman Chauvin, and I'm seeing the look in his eyes as he perpetrated that crime. And I'm, I'm almost feeling as though, well, did he experience what Jesse Ray is showing us in this poem? Did he know that? experience or will he know that in the future i can't get rid of the comparison now that it's been made maybe we all have some element within us that could do that under the right or wrong circumstances i wonder i wonder if that's what makes jesse ray's poetry so disturbing to read possibly as humans we are capable of anything human and we'd like to distance ourselves from that thought or that idea. And then reading Jesse Ray's poem right here, oh, I don't know, it just goes deeper and deeper. <laughs> and I hear the whispers of that man, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And here's Jesse Ray. I love to hear the scream, dream of the pain I've experienced, trying to get rid of it through him as he chokes at his puke and blood and drowns to death. Oh, my God. And his body shudders, danger, a blood-stained grin on the face of a person who never gives in. Does that mean that that image, those images that Jesse Ray has drawn from us, from his own innermost being, will never leave us either? Will we always be aware of them? Or is it a haunting that will help us perhaps avoid it and deal with it in a more positive way or of our own in the future? I see Jesse Ray looking in the mirror and his face transforming. He can't get the other face of that other person out of his mind. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I have to salute his bravery in writing about he had to turn and face some pretty awful stuff. He did. The way he interprets what he saw, the experiences of his despair are drawn with the finest, the finest pen. And those are eternal too. Speaking of torment, We've got a great interview coming up with a woman who lifted herself up from addiction and is now working on a federal grant to help keep people alive in seven Appalachian states long enough to get them into treatment. But first, 
Sandra is sticking around for our quick share segment. Sandra, what have you got for us? Well, my quick share is Roadside Theater on the web. Roadside Theater has been around for several decades, and if you go to roadside.org, you'll find videos of some amazing performances and also some interviews. It's highly entertaining as well as emblematic. It's some of the best American literature you'll ever hear. And some of the genres you can watch are dance, mountain music, and storytelling, including that subset of stories called the Jack Tale. When it comes to Appalachian culture, this is the real deal. And if you like storytelling, that is a specialty of Appalachia. And you'll get to hear not only the old-time Jack Tales, which came right across the ocean with the pioneering colonies. It also developed deeply in the mountains of North Carolina, East Tennessee, Kentucky, and Southern Ohio. So it's a rich, rich heritage of that part of the country that has spread all over the country. So roadside is a very strong opportunity for you to expand your knowledge of what it means to be Appalachian and what Appalachia means to America. That's roadside.org, and it sounds like fun. My quick share is an article in the New Republic about historian David Herzberg's new book. The book is titled White Market Drugs, Big Pharma and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, medical doctors famously kept some women on morphine for years. There were vintage ads for cocaine toothache drops. Uppers, downers, quaaludes, and Valium have flooded the market at various times. The opioid crisis is not new and not unprecedented, according to historian Herzberg. The New Republic article says that Herzberg, quote, reminds us that over the last 150 years, pharmaceutical boom and bust cycles have continually hit small towns and communities across America. Gina Musa has some amazing stories to tell. She sees addiction through the lens of a former addict and sex worker, and now as someone who works at a university as part of a federal grant in Appalachia. Based in Raleigh, North Carolina, she has gone from working directly with addicts to get them into treatment to helping build a seven-state network devoted to harm reduction. Gina, you've been really upfront about your previous life and how it relates to your work. You've talked about being addicted, ODing, turning to sex work. What do you tell people about your life? Um, I try my best. Like when I sit on uh, panels or I talk to people to not personalize what the topic is about my experience because every one of us have different experiences. So I'm just really honest. I I tell people I'm an ex-IV drug user and a former sex worker, and I did that for a whole long time, and now I'm in recovery. Are you doing that in the way of establishing credibility, or are you actually asking people who are in similar circumstances to trust you because you know what you're talking about? What happens is like this this identification process. So even when I'm working with a girl or a guy or whoever I'm talking to, again, 
it's not about me. It's about me listening to them. But I can honestly say I understand where you're coming from. It's a lot of like motivational interviewing, except for like what the hope would be to have them walk to ask for more help. How did your recovery go or your decision? Did it take several times or did you just decide one day and and was it upward from there? So it started off with pills that were prescribed to me for a surgery that I had. And then I liked them. And then I started buying pills and trying to manipulate the doctor. And then my habit got bigger than what I could afford with the pills. And I eventually switched over to heroin. And then um, I started smoking crack. So like I kept telling myself I'm going to stop. Like I was like, today will be the last day. It's going to be the last day. And there was never a last day. Was there a bottom for you? Did you hit bottom? I lived at bottom. (laughs) I didn't hit bottom. I lived at bottom. So for maybe well over a year, uh, maybe going on to two years, like I would sometimes pay for a room, but I was predominantly homeless. And that was in the wintertime and in the summertime. And I would like constantly try to make money. But all of my money went back to my addiction Like, I didn't care if I ate. I had been hospitalized about seven times. And they'll be like, you're malnourished. You're about, like, 80 pounds underweight. And I was like, I would rip the IVs out every time I came to and started feeling better and walk out the hospital. So you didn't even worry about eating? My number one priority was to make sure that I wasn't dope sick. That was every day. That's a a full-time job. And then, you know, food came maybe, but it was not on the top of my list at all. Before the sports injury, you were a bank teller, you were waitressing, bartending, you even worked in a doctor's office. It was a world far away from that of addiction and homelessness that came later. I would watch individuals do pills that I worked with and I'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, like I'm never doing that. These girls are crazy until I started doing it. After spending more than a year in recovery in the Raleigh area, you were worried about finding a job. If you had been through like these years of homelessness and substance use, I was like, there's nobody's going to hire me. I probably not even McDonald's. And so I had got a job and it was at a salad place and I, I liked it, but I was like, God, if this is all you have for me, then I'm grateful. But um, I started working with the girls that were like having a hard time staying sober or staying in the program I kept reaching out to them and like they would talk to me because they knew me and like they believed what I said. And I just started like building this, um, building these relationships based off of no expectations. No expectations? I don't have expectations. My only thing that I pray or that I think of is that I want somebody to live through the night. You started working at the recovery center, Healing Transitions, and you became part of a team that would visit people Within 24 hours of them having overdosed, what was that like? A lot of times, a lot of family members answered the door. We didn't always get the individual. Um, Families want you to fix their kid. You want their kid to get fixed. But a lot of unrealistic expectations sometimes. When I'm working with somebody, I work with the person because the parents are always like, wait, hey, do you mind if you just say this? They need to get a job. They need to go back to school. They need to stop using. Like, I'm not saying any of that. You know what I mean? I'm actually there to listen. My job isn't to um, to talk anybody into doing anything. It's just to support them when they're ready. 
And they might not even believe that the goals that you or their parents would have for them are achievable. I for sure did not ever think that my life would look the way it does today. I won't even bring up my recovery to them because my recovery could look different than what they're willing to do. Those relationships are really sacred. To build trust with an individual that's using and bond with them and them trust you is, it's not an easy feat. My main goal is to help the individual that's suffering. You spent a year at your next job, which was covering five counties for the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, still involved with helping people get into treatment. What made you leave that job? I I felt like I was going to burn out. And like my big fear was I do not want to end up where I started before this because it's a lot of trauma that we deal with every day. As part of your harm reduction work, you were giving Narcan to people who were promising to go into detox and you were trying to keep them alive long enough for that to happen. And then they would end up overdosing. That must have been hard to watch. I had this couple and the guy said, we can go to detox. And it was like for months, he kept saying he was going to get help. And I handed him five kits of Narcan. And I was like, hey, listen, I need you to be safe and come back. And and I don't know what the girlfriend was like nodded out. We were in Hardee's for like two hours. And the guy came back and his whole head was like scraped up and everything. And uh, he said, I overdosed five times. What did you do? I called my coworker and I was like, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I've lost people that I really, really love. It's just traumatic. There's been a couple of incidents. Um, I lost a really good friend a month ago. And before that, there was a girl that I was really, I, I like wanted this girl to like me. She wouldn't let anybody close to her. And like, I built this relationship with her. And so I'd go see her and like talk to her and just have conversations. And, um, Yeah, they found her on the side of the road one day. Wow. Were there people you lost when you were actively using? So that's what I I say every time when when I lose somebody. I was like, man, it didn't hurt like this when I was using. I don't know if people were dying when I was getting high. I really didn't care much about anything. Then in recovery, you had to learn to deal with painful emotions. Absolutely. For the last year and a half, you've been working on a federal grant at the University of North Carolina focused on harm reduction. I was like, how did I get this job? Like, everybody has master's degrees, PhDs, and I was like, what am I doing here? But um, I stuck it out, and I'm really grateful because I love what we do. I love where we're at right now. Under this grant, you've created a network in central Appalachia. What are the states you're working in? Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. Early on, you identified this hunger among people on the ground to know best practices, and you've discovered some approaches that work. If you look at Ohio right now, they're doing a wonderful job with housing. Where they fall short is like where we're doing really well with like the mobile exchange and it's like a puzzle if we just put all the pieces together but a lot of the bylaws and policy will not allow certain states to do certain things. Can you talk a little bit about syringe service programs or SSPs which are a big part of harm reduction efforts? We distribute naloxone, uh, syringes, cottons, cookers if we're allowed in that state, distilled water, 
anything that would cause an individual to cause less harm to themselves. This is really a, the beginning of a relationship because as you're giving people stuff, they start talking to you. So it provides an opportunity to get someone into treatment. The goal of this project was to talk to health departments, talk to CBOs, and talk to participants to build this network because harm reduction philosophy is like nothing about us without us. Your grant comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and there's a lot of support at the federal level for harm reduction programs. But a lot of states are making it much harder for the SSP programs to operate. Yep, and it's getting worse. There's still a big stigma attached to like what harm reduction is doing and if it's beneficial. The way that the law is written for in West Virginia right now uh, which they just passed, is that you have to be attached to a treatment program in order to access syringe service programs. There won't be any, like, outreach. It, it, what we've done when we say you have to go to treatment is we've pushed that individual further in the streets. The whole reason public health experts like SSP programs is because they save lives, right? I don't know what they think is going to happen, but... I think the most successful harm reduction organizations are the ones with the lowest barrier. You can work with an individual for a year that never asked to go to treatment. The whole point of these programs is to keep people alive until that moment when they're ready to go into treatment. Absolutely. I always say it's this like really small crack. Like you get this crack in the window once in a while. That's why like when somebody says they want help, like it's the first thing I do is to go out there and see if we can, I mean, I'm like the wolf of Wall Street minus the drugs. I'm like manipulating and maneuvering on the phone while I'm going to get them because I know that that, that moment will pass. So like, do we have a bed in detox? Can we go to medical detox? Can we get you in at the clinic? Like whenever somebody, I mean, it's, it's rare and it's, it's once in a while that people are like, hey, I want some help, but you better act right away. So if you can only do an SSP program with people who are already in treatment, it kind of defeats the purpose. Absolutely. That's the truth. What's the biggest thing you've learned in your years of addiction and now your years of work in the field of recovery? Is that I don't know everything or that it, the, the longer I stay in it, the less I know. I remember I went to see this girl who... Um, was in Durham and she was having, she was trying to get back in the clinic, but seven years ago they saw her selling a Xanax in the parking lot. So I had to like go lawyer it out with the clinic and they let her come back and they got funded. Said my, you know, my man has a um, job now cause he used to panhandle. And so they were living in a hotel room and she was living there for quite some time. So when I went to go see her and I was like, so what are we thinking next? And I thought she would definitely say, can you help me with housing? But she didn't. She said, I need help with my mental health. Like it had nothing to do with what the idea that I had in my head as to where she would go with it. Not what you expected then. I just knew she was going to say, we want to look for housing. And she said, I need help with my mental health. And I said to myself, you don't know anything. It's so humbling because even when people are using, they're the expert in their life. I promise you, they'll tell you what's worked and what hasn't worked. I, I wish we had tailor-made treatment for individuals so that we could work with them on a personal basis and allow them to dictate how it goes. Too, too much in treatment is, this is how it is, this is what we're doing, and like, 
a lot of people are not successful that way because that's not what they want to do. Do you still have hope? I do have hope. I have hope that, um, I have a lot of hope. I, I, I'm so glad that I have hope today and not expectations on people. Like I believe in the potential of people. I do. But before I'd be like, Oh, you know, when I first started, I thought this is what this person wants to do until I learned that like, mm-mm, no, they might not. Mm-hmm. So, but I believe in people and I, I mean, I believe in them. A news update. Greg Puckett, the Mercer County Commissioner interviewed on an earlier episode of this podcast, found himself the victim of an unfounded, politically motivated removal from the local Board of Health in 2018. He had advocated stronger anti-smoking measures. Puckett, you may recall, is a longtime advocate of strategies to break the cycle of addiction, strategies that don't dehumanize, belittle, or shame people. He said during the podcast that the West Virginia legislature, which was in session at the time, was considering a new law that would infuse even more politics into local health boards. That law has since passed. Here's what it does, according to news reports. If local health boards create a health rule, the county commission can throw it out. So much for independence. What's more, a totally new law affecting public health will, critics say, effectively end all needle exchange programs in West Virginia. An editorial in the Register Herald points out that this new law will lead to more HIV cases related to dirty needles and that medical care for those who predictably become infected will cost millions of dollars. That's it for this episode of Render, the Harm Reduction Podcast. You'll find contact info for Gina Musa in the show notes. And thanks to Chris Giles for our music. If you'd like to read the Hillbilly Drug Baby books, they're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just about everywhere else. I really recommend Jesse Ray's poetry, and he'll earn a small royalty if you buy his book. You can find more information, including a phone call between me and Jesse Ray, on hillbillydrugbaby.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.